What is going on, everybody? Welcome back to 101. This episode is brought to you, lovely folks, by... Alrighty, so who is the guest today? The guest is Gary Goddard. Now, before I go any further, let me just say that um, I understand that there is a little bit of a controversy around the name Gary Goddard, and when I reached out to him to try to get him on the podcast, I um, in our little messages back and forth, our text messages, I... I asked him and I wanted to read those messages to you right now just so that everybody is on the same page and then I'm going to comment on it afterwards and then we're going to get into the episode. So I sent him the exact text that I'm about to read you word for word. Here we go. Okay, now I'm aware of the controversy surrounding the name Gary Goddard. I'm not trying to get you on the podcast to bring up past difficulties in regards to the allegations and focus only on them. I am genuinely interested in your professional career and what you've accomplished. However, I did want to talk with you like this before the recording to see where you stand on talking about it. Is it something you'd be comfortable with discussing if I were to bring it up? Or do you have something you'd like me to say at the beginning prior to us recording? I feel like it's the elephant in the room, and I wanted to address it before we did the podcast. To which he replied, I have no interest in talking about that, only career stuff. To which I, res uh, to which I responded, okay, I respect that. It won't be brought up during the podcast. Again, though, is there any kind of statement you'd personally like me to read when I record the intro of the episode? To which he replied, no. Thanks, but no. Career stuff. So... That is the text exchange between Gary and I, and I just wanted to comment really quickly um, that uh, as far as my research has proven to me, this is strictly allegations against him, and I'm not even going to comment on those. You can you can search away and 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 feel better about yourself, but they are strictly allegations as far as my research tells, and so I felt comfortable enough to get him on here even though I knew in the back of my head it would you know, stir up some controversy among some people. So I just want uh, that to be out there in the open. If, if that is something that offends you, if that is something that you feel like is not right, the fact that I did give him this spotlight on the podcast, then you don't have to listen to the episode. But um, I think you would be... Um, uh, I think you'd be let down because uh, you'd miss out on one hell of an episode. We recorded for two hours, around two hours, maybe two plus hours, um, and it was just a it was just an awesome talk uh, about his career in the theme park industry and and uh, you know what it takes to succeed in that. And uh, of course, those lessons can be applied to many, many, many things in life not just the theme park industry. So this is a very valuable episode, I think. And, uh, you know, again, being the Terminator guy, the James Cameron guy, this was another treat because he uh, has worked closely with James Cameron on T2 3D Battle Across Time for Universal Studios. So that is a highlight of the episode, but that's towards the end of the episode. Having said all of that, guys, I hope you can get past any kind of wall that uh, those allegations may have put up for you. And... Enjoy this one. So, get ready. Get set. It's Gary Goddard. What is going on, everybody? Welcome back to the podcast. 
I am about to get Gary Goddard on the line. So let's cross our fingers and uh, hope that uh, he does indeed pick up. Here we go. Hello. Hey, Gary. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing today? Pretty good. You know, um, in, uh, in my home, working from here. Very, very cool. All right. So um, what I wanted to start this off with was uh, just asking you uh, like a real general question. Do you still go to uh, theme parks just because theme parks are, uh, you know, one of the most fundamental aspects of your entire career? Is that something that you're uh, constantly trying to, you know, see what's the latest and greatest that comes out from a from a theme park? Yes, uh, I still do. I mean, generally, I, I try to go to the uh, the parks where you're more likely to see those things. Like uh, Shanghai Disney was uh, that that was amazing. We were there for the opening on that one, and uh, the Pirates Ride and the Tron Ride and overall park. A lot to learn from that. I'm looking forward to going to the Beijing opening of Universal. I'm sure there'll be some cool things there too. But yes, in general, I do try and stay up in those things. It's it's half business, you know, and research, and it's half just going to have fun. Um, they're more fun when they're not crowded. <laughs> do, do, do they ever like, um, because, you know, you are a very prolific name, do you ever get sort of like, a, for lack of a better word, a special treatment when you go there? Or are you just sort of kind of like, a, like an average uh, theme park goer? Well, in, sometimes work related, uh, I will, I will get the VIP treatment. But I tend to just go, uh, you know, on my own because it's better if you're going to go to really see how things are working and how the public reacts. It's better just to go as a, as a plain Joe and, and be part of the crowd, you know. So uh, I would say 80 percent of the time I just go as a, as a person. I don't phone ahead and try and get uh, special treatment. I only do that if I have friends or family in town or something like that where we want to avoid the lines and things like that. Then then, yes. But. Generally, no, I just go as John Q. Public. Very, very cool. All right. So um, what's really interesting to me is sort of how anybody, I mean, can get into the profession that you got into and kind of deliver the the landmark um, uh, attractions that, that, that you were able to deliver and um, kind of help me like put those pieces together because there's not a whole lot in terms of like, I don't know how many interviews you give, but it's sort of, it's, it's, it's really hard to come across like your, like your history. So kind of explain to me how you even got into um, creating theme park attractions and then going beyond just a theme park, because you've also ventured into uh, theater and, uh, and film as well. Uh, well, you know, everyone's path, is different. Everyone walks their own path, so it's 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 uh, it's kind of hard to put it all together. But uh, I would say, first of all, my roots were in theater, and theater is is the best probably foundation for whatever you want to do in entertainment. Because in theater, you really learn about lighting and acting and writing and music and and drama and how it all comes together. So I think theater gives you a a, a really good foundation. And I spent all of my youth doing theater in, in Santa Barbara and, and uh, we were lucky it was a big theater town. By the time I got to college, I'd already been in 41 productions. So, uh, but now you're talking guess, about acting, correct? Yeah. Acting in shows, but I, in high school, I wrote my own musicals and directed them and, and, and I would star in them with, with, you know, with the rest of the cast. Very cool. Uh, 
so I did uh, the Three Musketeers in my junior year of high school, and then I did uh, the Journals of Lewis and Clark in uh, my senior year, and um, I would write them, and and then uh, I would cast them, and then I would direct them, and and uh, it was fun. Uh, but, but also in a lot of other big productions of, of things like Brigadoon and, and uh, The Happy Time, West Side Story, Oliver, you know, all those kind of things. Um, but uh, I think the unique thing is I always had interests in motion pictures and theater and animation and theme parks. Uh, always had that, that fascination because we lived in Santa Barbara, so we would go to Disneyland once a year from the time I was about five years old. It was a family trip. So I was always intrigued by theme parks. And I remember in junior high during math class, which I hated, I would be designing things like the Knights of the Round Table ride or the or the this ride or that ride. Um, and uh, so along the way, um, I also was very aware of Walt Disney's Nine Old Men because on one of my trips to uh, Disneyland when I was young, uh, there was a book for sale. They used to have an art of animation uh, exhibit at Disneyland, and they sold a book called The Art of Animation. And that was all, it was done during the time of Sleeping Beauty. And there was a picture in there of the nine old men in what they call the sweat boxes, where they went through sessions with Walt and he would give them notes and stuff of their pencil animation. And uh, so I, I learned all of their names then. And I, over the years, you know, tr looking for, for, for information on the studio and on animation and how it all worked. I pieced together uh, what Frank Thomas animated, what Ollie Johnson, what Milk Cole, what, what all of them had done. And by the time I was in high school, I managed to meet uh, Mary Alice O'Connor, who was married to um, Kendall O'Connor, who was a major layout uh, artist at Disney during the golden years, having laid out the Dance of the Hours sequence in Fantasia and many other things. And I said it was my dream to get a tour of the Disney studios. and. Uh, so she arranged for me to get a tour. And on that tour, I met everyone. I met Ken Anderson, Frank Thomas, Milk Call, John Lounsbury, Eric Lehman. Um, um, I met all of them. And uh, they were impressed because here's this young guy who, uh, here's this young guy who knows their work. I'm, I'm quoting them, their sequences. You did this, you did that, you did that. I was a genuine fan without even knowing that, that I was a fan. And um, so... I kept up those relationships as the years went by. I would write them letters once in a while. And I would, I would call one of them, uh, Eric Larson uh, or Frank Thomas. Frank and Ollie and Milt I knew really well and Ken Anderson. Uh, I didn't meet Mark until a little while later because he'd already been moved over to uh, Imagineering by then. And um, so I had all that interest. And then ultimately I, I managed a tour while I was at CalArts uh, of Imagineering and met Herb Ryman. In fact, Herb met me and gave me my tour because, you know, Imagineering didn't really give tours. But since I was a CalArts student and since I was very pro Disney, which at that time, CalArts, most of the people there were very anti-Disney, even though that was a school they financed. But that's a whole nother story. Anyway, so... Uh, so I got to meet Mark Davis and I got to meet John Hench and Herb Ryman and Claude Coates and a whole bunch of the others there at Imagineering. And I, I stayed pretty close with Mark, Mark Davis over the years. I got hired right out of college. And that's another story to, to go to Walt Disney World to direct, or I should say to assistant and co-direct a dinner musical called Hoopty Doo, the Wild West Dinner Review in Pioneer Hall. And uh, Larry Billman was the uh, writer and he was 
the director and I was working with him and then he wound up basically just assigning me parts of the show to direct because he had to go off and do other things. Uh, so, so we wound up kind of co-directing it and then that show was supposed to end uh, at the summer because it was, it was a summer workshop pr uh, production, uh, musical theater workshop and they brought in, they cast students from all over the country and brought them in. And um, I had graduated from CalArts literally graduated uh, on one day and uh, five days later was on a plane to uh, Florida, courtesy of uh, Disney to, to take on this job at Disney World. And um, when the summer was over, the show had become a big hit and it was, a, it was different. It wasn't a free show. It was a paid dinner experience where dinner was served as part of the show. It was all done as a musical number. It was kind of a unique thing and they were making money. So about three weeks before the close of the show, they said they wanted to give contracts to all the cast members. I mean, they called me in because I was over there managing and running the show. And um, they said, and it's really funny because I was uh, 20, 21, I guess. And um, and the president, the vice president of the entertainment division said, uh, we want to offer contracts to all the cast. We want to keep the show on. So we want to get this done. And I said, okay, but I'm, I'm, I, don't, I don't think you can do that. And they were like, what do you mean we can't do it? Of course we can. We can do that. I said, and I said, I said well, uh, let me rephrase that. You can do it, but um, you understand these are all college students who are going back to college across the country. And if you offer them all jobs, believe me, I'm sure they'll all take the job. But if you do, you understand it's going to make national headlines that Disney in, entice these college kids to come to, you know, Walt Disney World for this project and then hired them and told them not to go back to school. <laughs> and they went, oh, yeah, you're right. We didn't think of that. Well, what should we do? I said, well, we could cast a you know, professional cast right here in Florida and we could put them in and uh, they could take over. And I, I think we'd only have maybe one week of downtime. We'd need a week to put them into the theater. We rehearse off site. And they looked at me and they said, well, can you do that? And I said, yeah, because by then I directed a lot of shows. And they said, uh, okay, well, let's, let, let's do that. So we did. And so we had a uh, Orlando-wide casting session at the uh, Contemporary Theater. We had to, and then they said, by the way, we're going to run this two shows a night, seven days a week. So instead of casting one cast, we had to cast four casts. Uh, because when you work out a seven-day week and two shows a night, you have to have two full casts, and then you have to have another cast and a half of, uh, of standby performers. And so uh, we put four casts together and uh, put all four shows on stage, got them all rehearsed and open. The show was only ever down one week. Um, but anyway, that's a long way of saying, during that time I stayed in touch with Mark Davis and uh, I stayed at, um, stayed at Disney World for about a year and a half, but the last half I was looking for new things to do. I was getting bored. I got bored doing the, you know, managing. I loved putting the show on its feet, but then six months into it, when you're just really acting as a kind of a manager of the whole thing. So they put me in charge of the uh, golf resort as well as, as uh, that. So I was handling the Polynesian Hotel and the golf resort, and uh, but still getting pretty bored because I, I was very, very motivated in those days. So um, I decided I was going to leave. I gave my notice. Uh, I had two, I had already accrued two weeks of vacation. So I went, drove up to New York, or no, I flew up to New York, I guess. And um, saw a bunch of Broadway shows, looked around for an apartment, decided I was going to move to New York and, and pursue my Broadway interests. But when I got back, there was an offer, uh, a, a note uh, saying to call Orlando Ferrante, who was the business head of Imagineering at the time. 
Um, and uh, so I call and make a long story short, Mark Davis had heard that I was going to leave the company, thought I was good Disney material, thought I shouldn't, and wanted to interview me to come uh, take a position back in California at WED Imagineering, which had been a dream of mine. But I never actually thought I, I would be able to do that because I wasn't really an artist. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a very bad sketch cartoonist, but I'm not really an artist. And um, so they flew me back first class on Eastern Airlines, which doesn't even exist, but they were the airline at Walt Disney World. And uh, put me up at the Sheraton Universal, which was the best hotel in the Valley at that time. And, um, and I went in for my interview at Imagineering and I uh, met with, it was a very simple meeting, Mark Davis, John Hench, Marty Scalar, and Orlando Ferrani. And uh, it lasted all of about 40 minutes. And at the end, they said, great, uh, when can you start? And I said, well, I got to fly back. And then I got to drive back here with my car and my stuff. Uh, so I, I guess I could, that was a Monday. I said, I, I could probably be back by Monday, the following Monday. I said, okay, go upstairs, you know, fill out the forms in Orlando and we'll see you on Monday. And that is how I started working Imagineering. But I never lost my love of, of motion pictures and theater. So I, I started working in Imagineering and went right into the initial designs for a Fort Wilderness expansion, the beginnings of what was going to become Epcot and the World Showcase, and even some uh, work on the Tokyo Disneyland project, all of which were in the very uh, initial stages of, of uh, ideas and creation. Uh, so while I was there, I continued to do theater on the outside, directing shows, directing Jesus Christ Superstar, with Ted Neely and Carl Anderson in a production at the Santa Barbara Amphitheater, and a year later doing it again at the Concord Pavilion in San Francisco. And I also sold my first screenplay to Paramount Pictures while I was there, and then that's when I left Imagineering to pursue my career as a screenwriter, and that ultimately led to me directing. So it's a very mixed bag, and I don't, I don't think anyone else could follow that course. There was so much involved in the mentoring that I had from the Disney guys and the uh, opportunities I had that came via them. And, and, and then of course you, once you get these doors, when they open for you, you have to have the talent to, uh, to, to, to make it happen. But I think you also have to have a strong work ethic, which I've always had. And I've always been self motivated as well. Um, so that was a long ramble. I hope it wasn't too convoluted, but it is so hard to try and describe all the, uh, all the forks in the roads and all the things that happen that bring you to a particular place. No, yeah, no, I definitely agree. It's uh, it's it's really hard to kind of you know uh, propose that to someone and say, okay, kind of sum up your life in maybe five or, or six or seven minutes. But uh, um, the Imagineering, I would imagine, that's sort of the uh, correct me if I'm wrong. That's sort of one of the highlights, right? Because when I think of Imagineering, and I actually live in Orlando, Florida, so I'm very I'm very kind of um, taken up in the whole idea of of Imagineering because I mean Disney is you know to my left you know I mean it's not Imagineering but Universal is to my right and and um, it's 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 this thing that is that is so just a part of the the culture and Imagineering is I would imagine it's the it's the pinnacle right it's the if you're an Imagineer you're sort of you're like you're the best of the best correct me if i'm wrong like that's the that's sort of where you want to achieve and i mean the fact that you were able to become an imagineer is is uh is one of the highest credits on your on your credits correct yeah i think uh and not only that uh you know i was very young when i was i was 20 let's say i was 
Disney World 21. So I guess I got there when I was either uh, 23, I guess, probably 23, I think. Um, and I was the kid in their minds because, you know, I was there at a really great time. No one will ever probably be able to experience the Imagineering that I experienced because it was what Imagineering really was. It was very low on uh, administration and supervision, and it was very high on creativity, and they really placed a value on that. But when I tell people today that basically there were 20 of us that were working on all of the show concepts for World Showcase, Epcot, the Japan Project, and expansion ideas for Disneyland and Disney World. It was Albertino, Mark Davis, Claude Coates, um, uh, John DeCure Sr. joined at one point. Uh, he came back. Um, Rolly Crump came back while I was there, Rolly. It was uh, George McGinnis was doing the future stuff. It was, uh, I said Claude Coates, right? Uh, Mark Claude. Um, and it was, uh, then there were four young people, Phil Mendez, me, Rick Harper, and Claude Coates' son, Alan. So that's 10. And then there was, uh, they brought back, they brought back, um, oh, well, Herb Ryman was there. Herb, Herb was in and out all the time. Um, and well, anyway, there was, there was uh, Harper Goff. They brought Harper out of retirement uh, for all this. But I'm telling you, 20, 20 people, develop all the concepts for Epcot and there's now not all of us, you know, then there's draftsmen and there's architects and there's all kinds of things that happen after that, but 20 people, not 200, you know, but, but there's something about having that kind of containment, having that kind of close where everyone can just go to the other person's room at any moment and go, Hey, I was working on this. And, you know, and I, I was brought into the company at that time when I was working with all the, I mean, they're officially called Disney legends now, but back then I would say, I knew that I was working with Mark Davis and Albertino and Claude Coates and Herb Ryman. I knew who these guys were, but I didn't appreciate completely the, uh, how fortunate I was to be there at that time because, because that was the last great push with them. A after them, uh, except for uh, maybe Tony, well, Tony Baxter was like me. He's a little older than me, but, but he came in, he was in the model shop when I got there. And in fact, um, indirectly, I think I helped him move into show design faster than it would have otherwise, because everyone was like, I didn't know this, of course, because I was very unpolitical at the time. But I guess everyone was like, who's this guy? Uh, all of a sudden, he's in show design. He didn't go to the model shop. He didn't come up to the ranks. What's the deal? Um, but uh, so Tony went in and said, hey, I've been building these models forever. And I'm ready to be a show designer. And and that Goddard guy, he's, he's a show designer. Why shouldn't I be? And they said, you know, you're right. And they, they, they promoted it up instantly. I think within six months of when I was there. And Tony became, of course, uh, a legendary show designer there. And, uh, and I would put him in what I would call the younger generation. Um, but there were only five of us, if you include him. Phil Mendez, Rick Harper, Alan Coates, myself, and Tony Baxter. Um, and we got to work directly with these guys. And there was no training system. There was no apprentice system. The way it worked was uh, your name would appear on a list to be in a meeting at such and such at four o'clock on such and such project. And you'd show up and you learned by, you know, basically being there and soaking it up and, and doing uh, whatever you felt needed to be done and, and anything they asked you to do, anything you were assigned to do. 
and I always jumped into all of this stuff with uh, fervor. My talent was uh, less drawing and more writing. I could write, so I could write treatments, I could write concepts, I could write scripts, I could write, I could write that stuff. And um, this is the days of IBM Selectrics with whiteout, by the way, no computers. <laughs> Whoa. So, uh, so uh, my career really blossomed uh, quite well there at uh, Imagineering, and 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 within the the year, I was in charge of two projects: the Arab Pavilion and the Fort Wilderness expansion. And uh, and then I was also working with Albertino a little bit on a couple of things. He was doing the the Poland Pavilion and. Uh, a fish show, a fish animatronic show that he wanted to do, and I was working with uh, Herb Ryman uh, on concepts for the for the Japan Pavilion, and uh, I was working with uh, George McGinnis on some things for the Tomorrowland arcades in Florida and and uh, Anaheim both, and uh, and then you get oh and I uh, Randy Bright asked me to uh, throw in some ideas for the American Adventure, uh, which I did, and I, in fact. I was the one who inspired that show indirectly because Randy Bright came to me when when they were looking around for an idea, and 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 I started to talk about how he because he wanted to do some kind of a show and I said well you could use wagons you could use lifts and you could use this and 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 he really wasn't even following what I was saying, and believe it or not he'd never seen a major live stage production, and I sent him to I said well go to the Amundsen I can't remember which show it was at the time it was a big big musical at the Amundsen. And uh, he went to go see it and came back totally charged up. He goes, okay, I get it now. I, I see how it works, you know. And uh, that, and off he went. And that was pretty much his baby. But uh, anyway, I think uh, Imagineering was a uh, incredible experience. And, and more so when I look back than when I was actually living it. Because it... It just seemed natural at the time because they were so accepting. They were just, uh, they treated me like an equal, not like some junior kid. I wasn't like a runner. They, they bring me into a room and they, they wanted my thoughts and, and they'd assign me things to do and I would do them. And uh, so I was there really at a, at a magical time. I don't think, I don't know what Imagineering is today, but I know with thousands of employees, it can't be like it was then. You literally took the next question out of my mouth. I was going to say, do you think that it's that it's continued that kind of acceptance or is it more kind of cutthroat kind of, uh, you know, trying to get in and 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 really make a mark just because, I mean, the fact that. OK, so when was this like when did you like uh, what 70, was the year? 70. Uh, I was at Disney World in 74. Uh, sorry. Yeah, 74. Right? Yeah, 70, 74. Uh, and I uh, graduated from CalArts, 74, went to Disney World. By the end of 75, I think, somewhere in there, I went to Imagineering. I was there from 75 through 77. Then I left to go write the screenplay at Paramount, but then they brought me back as a consultant. So I actually was there on and off from 77 through 79. So I would say uh, 75 or 76 through 79. Uh, and, um, and, you know, towards, towards the end of my consulting there in 79, they were starting to expand and, and bring more and more people on, um, nothing like, like, you know, now, now it's like a military industrial complex, you know, it's like massive, multiple buildings and multiple teams, you know, um, I don't think it's the same, uh, because when you, uh, when you talk to people separate from when they do these promotional things, 
um, these videos that are official. Unofficially, not too many people are, are, are really happy at Imaginary. They are challenged. And, uh, and of course, uh, I think a lot of them like being part of, of the whole kind of experience of creating these things. But um, it seems that uh, there, well, for instance, in what I do, when, when someone comes on board, if they stay with me, they work on six, eight, 10, 12 projects a year. At Disney, you'll probably work on one project for four years of your life, maybe five, maybe six. Jeez. And yeah, that, well, that, that's how long it takes for those things to happen. You know, it's, it, they're massive projects and, and you get assigned to that project and that's your project. And the other thing, it's become very compartmentalized. So, you know, uh, I mean, I, I mean, I don't know if Tony wants to tell the story out of school, but Tony Baxter actually told me when they were doing the redo of the submarine ride at Disneyland, there were five creative directors. His role was to handle the show. Uh, another one was to handle the exterior. Another one was to handle the, uh, the, uh, the, the main entrance and the queue and the this and the that. I don't know. So he, uh, he had went to his counterpart uh, who was handling a lot of the exterior and he made a few suggestions about the island, about a few things. And uh, that person nodded and went, mm -hmm, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then uh, 30 minutes later, the executive producer came over and told Tony that he should butt out of uh, telling other people what to do in their areas of responsibility. And Tony was like, well, I wasn't telling her what to do. I was just giving her some suggestions and observations. You know, most people who are confident in their work, um, and I'm talking about people that I work with, like Steven Spielberg and Jim Cameron and stuff. Yes, they're, people say they have egos. They don't have egos. They're very confident. They know, they know what they want. However, they also listen. And they listen to everyone and, and they, uh, they respect the opinions of others. They may not always agree with them, but, but when you're that kind of person, you don't shut yourself down to outside opinions. You welcome them. You still then make the decisions what you want to do. But I, in a microcosm, I mean, that's what Tony described to me back in those days. I don't know how it is now, but back in those days, it was like, this is your slice of the pie. That's what you work on you stay out of everything else. And I think um, that's why so many of the attractions and so many of the parks back in that time, that transition period did not turn out so well. I think obviously the system has improved a little bit because, or maybe a lot, I should say, because uh, I think Shanghai Disney is a glowing success. And I think the Pirates ride there is one of the greatest rides ever done. I think for a coaster, the Tron ride is one of the best uh, rides ever done. Now you understand by my standards, when you're talking about a family park, I'm talking about knowing your audience. And the great thing about Pirates has always been, it's for all ages, all ages, from the smallest kid to the you know, oldest senior citizen. Um, and it works, and that one works phenomenally. It, it works for every age. Tron is a great coaster because it's just exciting enough for the teens and young adults who like coasters, but it's not so, so uh, you know, dynamic that Older people and younger people can't get on it as well. Not, not very young, of course, because because of the, the safety issues. But uh, I think in those two rides, they really, really uh, demonstrated what Imagineering can do when they've got the right focus, the right direction, the right ideas. 
the flip side of that was the opening of the you know California Adventure Park, which was a park that forgot every design principle ever developed at Imagineering. And part of that was because there was no one from the original group still around. And uh, I'm not going to mention names because I don't be negative, but people at the highest levels were dictating what that park would be. And, and it became a park about brands. It was like going to a mall. You know, they had all the brand name restaurants. And of course, outpriced, didn't understand their own family market. All those brands left because no one was going to go in and pay that kind of money because a family of four or five coming to a theme park for fun is not going to order $25 entrees and uh, $100 bottles of wine. So, um, and of course, the attractions were among the worst ever designed in a Disney park. That's all been corrected now. Disney has the ability because of its, uh, you know, resources to go in and fix things. I, I went to it uh, the second week it was open and sent a letter to the guy who was the head of uh, the Disney parks at that time, a guy who came out of the retail business, Gap or Banana Republic or one of those. And obviously, if you look at California Adventure, that's what it looks like. Some retail guy designed that or supervised it. But I wrote a letter saying, you know, what you really should do is uh, you should turn that into the Pixar park. You should You should have the Disney park over there and you should have the Pixar park there and you should rebrand everything, redo the rides. And, and uh, I never got a response, but uh, it is funny because that's more or less kind of how it wound up. But now, of course, you would add Marvel because because uh, you have Marvel. But anyway, uh, I think they went through a very, very, very difficult period there and uh, everything changed under Iger for the better. Well, okay. So, and back in the seventies, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, because I'm not that well versed in it. Were there the international parks? Was there uh, Japan? And was there? Um... It was a start. We were just starting on the Japan park. That was the first. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, international park. So, so we were literally in the very beginning of concept planning stages of that, and we were in the, uh, I would say, the first. The first third of the beginnings of Epcot and the World Showcase and the pavilions and all that, and uh, and then still working on uh, additions to and improvements to the existing parks, Disneyland and Disney World, and all of that was being done by about 20 key creatives with drafting and model shopping to support, of course. But uh, I look at it now and just think, wow. I mean, you know, and we do the same thing. I mean, we have to in the real world. I don't. We don't have hundreds or thousands of employees we, we do what we do with a core group of 20 or 30 people and when a project comes on we bring in people to staff up that particular team and and then when that project's over like a movie those guys go you know they're all independent consultants they go back to what they're doing i'm sure with the with the economy the way it is now imagineering probably is going to have to adopt a strategy closer to that because uh with all the parks being closed right now you know they're getting killed yeah, so uh, so how exactly does that work? Because that is something that uh, that I don't think anyone ever thought would have, uh, you know, actually happen. I actually had a a friend of mine on not too long ago who's a real theme park enthusiast, and uh, we were talking about that, like just taking the the fact for granted that okay, we'll we'll always have Disney World and 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 Universal open, like it'll never close, and it's been closed for almost close to a month now and it's for the foreseeable future. We don't know when these things are going to reopen. So when they do reopen, is there going to be a, 
like how like 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 how do you think they're going to try to get the that revenue back that they've lost? Well, they're going to make a lot of money in those hazmat suits that they're going to be uh, selling to people. Just kidding. That was <laughs> no, but they were even talking about that, weren't they? Where they're like they're probably going to increase the security of uh, just when you're checking, you know, through the security gate. Like they're going to do a temperature, you know, uh, uh, figuring out like seeing if someone has like a higher temperature or it's crazy. Yeah, well, if you travel internationally, it's so funny. They don't do it in the U.S., but in all of the Asian countries, Korea, uh, China, when you go through, uh, you pass through one area where they're they're taking everybody's temperatures, you know, long distance. You give you a little a little uh, temperature reading is is looking at every infrared temperature thing is uh, measuring everybody. And uh, I don't think we still I don't we still haven't installed that here yet. I don't think we have that, but. Uh, Turns out, I guess they weren't so stupid. That was a smart thing to do. Yeah, very, very, very smart. But uh, um, so, do you have any ideas on how, like, they're like, like, what is a is a churro going to go from five dollars to ten dollars? No, I think uh, I think uh, in the short term, what will happen is that there will be more. Uh, there will be a, a different kind of check. You'll have to go through a uh, a temperature check and whatever else they come up with. And um, and they may have to deal with social distancing for a while. But once they have the I mean, at some point, they will have the vaccine. Once they have a vaccine, it won't matter anymore. Um, although now I guess everyone will be concerned. Well, what's the next what's the next uh, virus around the corner? Um, I think that uh, it will be hard for the parks to get back to normal. But I mean, ultimately, it will happen. It's the question is, will it take? 90 days from the time they open or will it take a year or more from the time they open to be back to normal so uh it's it's a it's a big challenge but not just for the theme park industry for the motion picture industry and movie theaters and arenas and concerts and i mean all of the things that we do you know the other bigger question is will people get out of the habit will they uh <laughs> will this change the way they operate and not that people won't go to theme parks or movies or concerts, but will they go not quite as much? Will they go a little less? Instead of going a dozen times a year, will they go three times a year? I think that's the bigger question people are wondering. Will this change the the way people behave with regard to, you know, public entertainment? Yeah, that is a, that is a fascinating question, and I, I don't think anyone has the answer. It's, it's just going to be something that uh, when the parks reopen and and when, like you said, uh, arenas reopen and, and and movie theaters, it's we'll just have to see. Like, um, but this is funny because I've I've a uh, I, I feel like I've been ahead of the curve. I'm sort of a germaphobe in real life, like not like Howie Mandel germaphobe, but <laughs> you know what I mean. Like I I I was practicing a lot of what is sort of now the norm i was doing the the fist bumping and not shaking hands and and you know pretty frequently washing hands and and whatnot and it's funny because now this is all happening and and now you now you can't go into a store and and you know get your sanitizer or your or your uh essentials and it's just it's crazy so i don't know what's going to happen i know it's going to be like for me personally um i'm going to be probably giving it so from the day they open like we'll say movie theaters and whatnot I'm going to probably give it another month or so just to see, because I think they're even saying that there's probably going to be a second wave of this, of this virus yeah. that uh, we're going to sort of come down from this high. And then we're going to feel like, okay, everything's back to normal. And then it's going to reinvigorate and, and, uh, and uh, cause more havoc. So, 
but uh, it's really interesting. And I just wanted to see if you had any kind of uh, guess on that. Uh, well, like, like, like how they're going to make their money back because yeah, they are hurting and, and uh, it's a scary time, but this stuff needs to happen. I feel like, you know, you, you, you kind of need this, this shakeup to really kind of make you realize don't take this stuff for granted. And, and, and really like, how are we prepared for, for something like this? You know, like how are we prepared to, to deal with this and not even on a, not even on like a casualty level, just on an economic level. You know what I mean? Like it's scary well, stuff. The theory is you're supposed to have a system in place that stops it before it reaches this kind of critical mass, but we didn't. And so that's the way it goes. Um, and uh, so, you know, remember there was a chance of this with Ebola. There was a chance of this with SARS. Those were all contained. Um, this one was not contained, unfortunately. Um, but I'm with you. I mean, I kind of felt like between the social messaging and uh, all the different platforms and the, uh, uh, you know, the people that, uh, the taste people that, you know, uh, are recommending, we had become a culture of, you know, buy, 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 buy this, buy that, buy that, go here, go there, go there, take pictures. You know, it was like this increasing uh, frequency. It was, was almost like, well, people don't go to theme parks anymore to go to the theme park. They go to take pictures and show their friends they're there. And then once they're done that, they're, they're, they're gone. Same thing with like the Grand Canyon. I have a friend who works there. They say, you know, people come to Grand Canyon, they take a picture, they're gone. <laughs> um, so, you know, one thing that this has done, that, that massive, fast, rapid pace of everything that was happening simultaneously. I mean, I mean, a good example is the streaming services. You know, they put on a show. And everybody watches all 10, all 12 episodes, all 15 episodes where they are. They all, they watch it in a week. Now they're done. So the streamers are like, we need more, we need more, we need more, we need more because people are absorbing things so quickly. And that was before this, uh, we all got uh, quarantined to home. And now I can imagine people must be watching things they would never watch. Like, oh, let's watch this. <laughs> yeah, very true. Very, very <laughs> true. It's, it is, it, it's a... Uh... I don't know. It's it's a it's sort of getting like sick and tired like of talking about it, but it's sort of uh I wanted to get your opinion specifically on the theme park industry just cuz you are so uh involved in it and uh and uh it's one of the highest, you know, ways of revenue in terms of specifically right here in Florida. I mean, that's, you know, that's one of the you know, if you have to deem something essential, I would imagine you would deem the parks essential just to in in, yeah. in terms of tourism, you know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. So, well, uh, your governor opened the beaches up. Let's hope that he's right and not wrong, because if if those beach people start getting sick in any kind of heavy percentage, that's going to kill another opening later. No, no one will go until they know it's absolutely safe. I think maybe the guy jumped the gun a little bit, and it's not going to be helpful for Orlando if those beaches wind up becoming hotspots. Very. But I guess we'll see. Yeah, very true. It's uh. Again, I think it's the parks will reopen, and I think there will there there will sort of be a gap where you can actually go and you won't experience that long of of a wait time because the parks will still probably be pretty empty. I think a lot of people are going to be hesitant to to return to that normalcy just to kind of see if you know this is just a little dip in the uh, in the amount of cases because I mean I don't know about you, but anytime I go to a theme park, I always have the hand sanitizer. I always have like I'm sort of on a normal level day to day, kind of at like a, like a, like a five in terms of how I, you know, 
keep my cleanliness. But when I go to a theme park, it's bumped up to at least a nine, just in terms of like what I'm touching, like like handrails and and uh, 3D glasses. Like I always hated putting those 3D glasses on my face just because I knew maybe yes, maybe they clean them, but uh, I don't know. Maybe they just spray some water on them. <laughs> I, um, I carry, I, I'm not, I'm not quite as bad as you, or I haven't been in the past, there, but I always carry a little bottle of that, but I carry it because I'd already read like things like gas pumps. And I read an article that said the most, the easiest places to pick up bacteria are salt and pepper shakers in restaurants or any of the bottles, ketchup, anything like that. Yep. Gas pumps. When you put gas in the car. Oh yeah. I had this, I have a mental checklist. So when I would use those things or in any other situation where I thought maybe that was kind of dirty or whatever, I would use my, uh, my sanitizer. I would, I'd pull out my little, you know, um, Purell. So I have been aware of it, not to the degree you were, but to some degree and was already practicing some of those things. And then I live here in my home alone anyway. So I'm, I'm when I'm here, but you know, most of the time I'm traveling, but not now. Uh, so it, it hasn't been that hard for me to adjust to being at home. I can do most of what I do, um, at home other than being out in the, in the field with the clients and when we're actually building parks and things, but right now we're not anyway. So I'm good. And, and, and uh, one way or the other, it will work itself out. That's, that's life. But God, the, you know, the huge capital, uh, investment that the companies have in these parks and the, uh, you know, they got to maintain them. They can't just walk away. There have to be people that are keeping those things in some kind of operation capability, or it'll be a nightmare trying to reopen the parks. Reopen the parks, they'll come up with all kinds of things, I'm sure, you know, two-for-one prices, special passes, a, a free week for everybody to, uh, you know, or I don't know. They'll, they'll, they'll figure out ways to get people motivated to go. But I'm like you. I mean, honestly, if I thought the park was empty, uh, Disneyland, I would... Uh, put on my gloves and put on my mask and go, I guess. Yeah, very true. So um, what is it about the, cause like the biggest rivalry probably is Disney versus universal and, and you being someone that has worked closely with both of these, these, these iconic theme parks, because you have other theme parks, obviously SeaWorld, Busch Gardens, and, and I'm sure there's others out there that, that, uh, that are, you know, not in my backyard, but it's really the Disney and Universal, I think, is sort of the, you know, where you'll see that big VS in between. And having having worked in both of these fields, do you feel as though Disney has the upper hand over Universal or is 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 Universal kind of slowly gaining that momentum? Because personally, I'm more of a of a Universal guy, if I'm being completely honest. I just uh, I think they're more obviously aimed at adults versus Disney, which is more kids and, 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 and teens. Well, have you read that book, Disney versus Universal? There's actually a book called Disney versus Universal. Yeah, yeah, you should get it. Oh, wow. It's uh, it's, uh, it's the uh, you know, it's, it's not a major publisher, but it's, it's theme park press. I'm sure, you don't know about it. I uh, no, I had no clue. Themeparkpress.com. And then if you read that one, um, then you should read the follow-up, which is called J-Bangs, about how Jay Stein, MC, and Universal invented the modern theme park and beat Disney at his own game. I'm quoted in the inside cover. In the history of the modern-day theme park, there are two names that are important, Walt Disney and Jay Stein. And uh, as, as the guy that helped Universal go from what was known as the Rubber Shark uh, Park to, to what it's become, 
Um, that rubber shark, by the way, though, that was an incredible, incredible ride. <laughs> well, originally, the one here in California was kind of, you know, kind of phony. It was always a joke. The tram, that thing would come up and snap at the at the tram. But yes, they vastly improved in, in, in uh, Florida, even though it was a nightmare getting there. But, um, you know, we came in after it opened to, to try and fix it. But uh, I had a long history with, with Jay. I think um, I think Jay was the right guy at the right time. <clears throat> at the very time that Disney was starting to get um, kind of uh, over over engineered, I guess uh, you know, um, wasn't the Imagineers' fault necessarily. It was just the what was what was being uh, handed down to them by management and the rules they were having to work with led to things like. California Adventure and led to things like uh, the first Hong Kong Disneyland. These are all under Paul Pressler and Paul Pressler was a numbers guy. And, uh, you know, Walt always said that he's quoted. If, if the numbers guys ever take over, that'll be the end. Well, the numbers guys took over during that period. And uh, so I don't fault the creative Imagineers. They did the best they could, but uh, under Pressler, uh, he really had a retail mall, uh, sensibility and california adventure showed it the budget cuts on hong kong disneyland even the second gate when the second gate at paris disneyland opened that was an embarrassment i don't know if you were there but i mean they basically had almost no attractions and what they had were really pathetic um so that was that was the low point and actually if you have you watched the imagineering series they did for uh, disney plus no, I just recently got the Disney Plus, and uh, I have to okay. definitely check that out. Well, I will say this much for them. They, they, they're pretty honest in there. Maybe not totally 100% honest, but, you know, they admit that was a, uh, that was a bad time. That was a low point in the Imagineering uh, time. And, of course, it's, it becomes an endless cycle because if you're doing work you're not proud of, it's demoralizing. But you still got to You want to keep your job. And, you know, so... Yeah, they really, they really lacked. They were a, they were a ship without direction under Pressler, which was, which was part of Eisner's regime, and um, so I think that was a low point. And Iger, Iger brought it back. He, uh, and in fairness to uh, Eisner, you know, they were, they were doing okay as long as Frank Wells was there. Frank Wells died in a tragic helicopter accident, and really, if you look at the Disney company within a year of Frank's death, everything's falling apart. Katzenberg's leaving. There's lawsuits. Mike Ovitz comes in. Mike Ovitz, it, it is a mess. So the unsung hero of the transition of the Eisner group was Frank Wells, who obviously stayed low, didn't look for a lot of credit, kept kept Katzenberg and, and uh, Eisner working together, let their, kept made, made them keep their egos in check. And I think he was a big supporter. I understand from Tony and others that he was a big supporter of Imagineering. When he died, and Eisner assumed full control, you can see it's pretty much a, a downward spiral from then on until Iger steps in. When Iger steps in, everything changes, and it changes for the better. So, uh, I mean, I don't want to get into big history, but yes, do I follow all this? Yeah, I follow all of it because I was... Uh, it wasn't, I do not want to sound like it was me alone. It wasn't, I don't want to talk about me, 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 but I was certainly at the forefront of a lot of major things that happened at Universal that slowly but surely over a decade made Universal competitive enough to do the Florida project. And then again, with some of the things we did there, uh, Spider-Man, 
T2-3D uh, in particular, along with some other innovations. Um, we, we, we basically helped, inadvertently helped Imagineering because they could point to Spider-Man 3D. They could point to T2-3D. By the way, they could point to Conan back when I did Conan and say, hey, these guys just outdid us. We need to step up. So I think there was a healthy, uh, healthy, healthy competition from the creative side and also from the guest side because this competition led Universal and Disney to take bigger chances and, and make bolder choices uh, to try and to try and top each other. And uh, and I think I think Conan started it. I was because I knew Mark Davis and I knew. Uh, uh, Herb Ryman and all those guys, I actually invited them over. That's after I'd left Imagineering um, and formed my own company. And they, they thought Conan was fantastic. In fact, I found out later through a, uh, a memo that was given to me, uh, it had become required viewing for all the Imagineers. Now, Imagineers back then didn't mean every employee. It meant the key show design group. Uh, so, uh, so all the engineers, uh, all the Imagineers had to go see the show. And uh, their response to that was the Indiana Jones uh, stunt show, I think. Um, and as part of the whole universal thing, I think we did help to elevate everything. And I think the there was a lot of turning points, T2, Spider-Man, a lot of things, Islands of Adventure, there was a lot of different things. But the big one was when Disney and Universal were bidding for Harry Potter. And uh, Disney finally said, we're not, it's not worth this much, and Universal stepped up, and you know that that really changed the game for Universal, big time. Very true. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's sort of the um, yeah, that's like the flagship of Universal. That's what they're like. That's their bread and butter. It seems like right now. Um, but that's interesting. I didn't know that the that the Conan show because I did know that you were involved with the Conan show, but I did not know that that might have actually been um, the thing that led to Disney creating the Indiana Jones show. Yep. Uh, not only that, it was the it was the first attraction Universal did that signaled to Disney that they've 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 gone out of the little rubber shark type and, and the Hulk breaking down a, a brick wall. Uh, so uh, so that was that was the, the, the and then they followed with the, the King Kong attraction, uh, and that was that was a huge success. And that again showed Disney, all right, we're getting our we're getting our act together over here. We we can do things. We can do a big giant King Kong with explosions and pyrotechnics, and we can do this kind of thing. And and Jay was slowly building a team, but but I think he was smart. He didn't build up a, a big internal Imagineering group. He had a small core group of people that he used, and they would bring in people like me and others to help them achieve these attractions. So he would keep his overhead down, and all the money would go into the the attractions themselves. Was the Conan uh, attraction was that specifically inspired by the by the Schwarzenegger film? Yeah, that's why it came up. Sid Sheinberg. What happened was Jay had done a Dracula show, and I was not part of Universal at that point. I had just formed my company. The Dracula show was was awful. Even Jay admitted it. It was his baby, and he had brought on Peter Alexander, um, who was in accounting at Imagineering, but uh, but was able to sell himself as a show and a rides guy because he really wanted to be creative. And so he was put in part in charge of a division then called, uh, I think it was uh, Shows and Special Effects or yeah, something like that. And, um, and uh, he actually, 
uh, he had heard that Shine or Scheinberg said, I, I want to do a Conan show. Jay wanted to fix the Dracula show, but uh, Peter was given authorization to pursue the Conan thing. And he called Roly Crump because he had known Roly at Imagineering like I had. And uh, he called Roly. I only found this out years later. I had no idea how Peter actually got my name, but um, he called Roly and described doing this Conan show. And Rolly said, oh, yeah, well, that sounds like a live show. That's really not my thing. But there's this kid from Imaginary, Gary Goddard. He just left. He has his own company. You should call him because I think that's his thing. He, he gets that. So Peter called me and uh, led to a meeting. And uh, that rest is history, as they say. Uh, so we developed the Conan show to be the most spectacular live stage thing. We sold it to Jay as bringing, bringing the kind of special effects you see on film to life on stage in front of your eyes. And what I was able to do with that show is when it started, we had to have, it was a mandate that we had to have volunteers from the audience in some part of the show. In the first version of Conan, I worked in a thing, but I went to Jay, I said, you know, this just breaks the whole, I mean, imagine the middle of a movie, you bring on four comedians for some humor and then you get rid of them and you continue the movie, Jay. That's what you're doing here. So either you design a show that's designed for audience involvement or can we just forget that? Because we're trying to take people back into the times of sword and sorcery. We're trying to make this real. It's not a time for gags with the audience. And I finally convinced him. So Conan was the first show at Universal that didn't have some <clears throat> audience involvement, stupid gag. Don't get me wrong. There is a time and place for that. And there are certain shows that are made for that. And, and I think I've done one or two of those as well. But um, for Conan, it was the wrong, wrong thing. So uh, we were... Uh, we were able to do this show and do it completely as a as a piece, and uh, you know it worked quite well. And attendance shot up, and uh, that led to King Kong. And once again, attendance shot up. So uh, they were roll. They did the earthquake show next. We were not part of that. That was done by uh, <clears throat> the internal group, and uh, I think I think Sequoia, which was a which was a design and manufacturing firm out in Valencia at the time. I think they built the equipment for that and stuff. I believe, if I remember right. But uh, the next thing I did for them is they tried to do the A-Team show internally by themselves. And the A-Team show was a huge disaster. And Jay was very upset. And he called me in and wanted me to help them fix it, which I did. Um, it was a pretty, you know, I say it was a simple fix. Nothing simple. You have to figure this stuff out. Because after they spent all their money, they don't want to spend a lot of money on fixing things, but they want it fixed. So we had a limited budget. But basically what I did was I watched the show. It was way too long. It was like 25 or 35 minutes. And they had like eight major special effects. Well, eight major special effects over 25 minutes. I mean, I don't need to tell you. It sounds boring already, right? So I went in there with an idea. I said, here's what I want to do. Uh, I, want to, I want to cut the show itself down to about eight to 10 minutes. Basically, a big pyrotechnic explosion or falls every minute or so. But to make up for the time, I'm going to create a new <clears throat> pre-show. And the pre-show will be a great warm-up for the audience. So on that one, I did use a plant in the audience. Not a real audience member, but the people thought he was. And we'd have a guy who would find a woman with some children somewhere and just go up to him when they were loading and say, hi, I'm with the show. I'd like to sit with you. And I'm going to pretend you're my wife. And these are my kids. Can you just play along? And, you know, as, as you see things happen. And they, they, they would brief him on it. They'd say yes. So the pre-show would start, and the guy would say, well, before we start, this is a movie about Hollywood stunts, and we're going to do some stunts, and we want to show you how it does. We want to volunteer from the audience. We need someone in good shape, someone who's willing, and they would eventually find him. 
and they would bring him down and he would play it and the wife, the, the, the person in the stands would play it or the kids, they'd wave and they'd cheer him on. And he said, we're going to take him through a few simple stunts here just to show that these things are safe and da, da, da. And of course, as you can imagine, <laughs> everyone, there's three stunts. The first one's really simple so you can believe that it really is an audience. I think he just falls out of the truck or something down and they hit a bump. And he gets up and he pretends like he's okay. Sir, are you okay? The guy's like, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. Are you willing to keep going? Yeah, yeah. And the, you know, and the next one was a little more dangerous and, and it looks like he really gets hurt, but he's fine. He's fine. The last one, he has to run into a little house that we've built. We put in a, a rubber dummy of a woman and we're going to, we want to know, can you, we're going to light these fuses here and you're going to have exactly, you know, 60 seconds or whatever it is, 40 seconds to get in there and rescue this woman. You know, before the the whole thing explodes, can you do it? He goes, yeah. So <clears throat> we have what's called a quick fuse. You light it, and it goes it goes slow for about the first you know two feet, and then it just goes. <laughs> it just it just takes off and <laughs> and gets the source in a matter of seconds. So they light the fuse. The guy runs into the house. Before he can get out, the fuse just zips along, and the whole thing blows up with him in it. And he comes out with his with his clothes kind of blown up and ripped and smudges on his face and stuff. And by this time, most people have to understand, they must understand that this guy's a plant, but some people still didn't, but he took it well. And then he went off by now. The people are applauding. They're laughing. They're in a great mood. And now we hear the 18 theme. Dun, 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 those drums. Dun, 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 dun. And the show starts. And now the show's only, the show's only about eight minutes and there's an explosion a pyrotechnic machine guns every roughly every minute to the big explosion at the end. So that's that's how I fixed that show. And where was that located? That was at Universal Studios Hollywood. This is way before Florida. Oh, okay, okay. I was going to say I had no recollection of uh, uh, the A team being in Florida. That makes more sense. Okay. Um, so no, then the Florida project came and we were an integral part of that and uh, and we completely turnkeyed Ghostbusters. That was ours. We were the only turnkey contract other than building the building. We designed, produced, installed, programmed. Robert DeLapp was the director of that. If you want to talk about that show, you should do an interview with him someday. Uh, he could tell you all about how we did Ghostbusters. It was the world's biggest Pepper's Ghost illusion. And uh, combined with live actors on stage. And we had massive special effects. We used UV lasers to create the uh, ectoplasmic blasts that would uh, get, that they'd shoot at the guys. It was It was a very complex show. Now, when you like when you talk about uh, Florida, um, because I think one of the like if you were to ask a like a general person and be like, um, if you were to describe how Universal Studios Florida came to be, like what's the one name you'll probably uh, hear from that person? And I would imagine just from his popularity that uh, that Spielberg would like 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 that name would just jump out from someone like oh like maybe Spielberg was really heavily involved. Is that true, or was that sort of just like a publicity thing to just get people excited? Like, oh, Steven Spielberg signs off on this. Uh, that was a marketing thing to be able to include his name. He he got the best deal of the century. He got, uh, but they didn't make him pay. He got five percent of 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 Florida, and uh, he put up fifty million for it though. Um, but uh, but it was a great deal for him. But no, there's only one name that made Florida happen, Jay Stein. You need to read two books. You need to read the Disney versus Universal, which is how Jay just single-handedly persevered and persevered and persevered to, to make Florida happen. And uh, and how many betrayals he had along the way. Mike Eisner was really uh, 
very dishonest during that time because it was almost a joint venture between Disney and, and Universal. But uh, you'll read all about that. Then read Jay Bangs, the, the second book uh, that really goes into his whole history and how he really, uh, you know, once he got hold of the recreation group and the studio tour, how he just hammered and hammered and hammered away to make that uh, a successful division. And then when he had the vision for Florida, how, they, how he pushed that through. It truly, in, in the theme park world today, there's two names, Walt Disney and Jay Stein. And, and those are the two names <clears throat> in terms of the greatest advances in parks <clears throat> and the technologies for rides and all that kind of thing. I knew it. I knew it. Spielberg, damn that guy. I mean, not damn that guy, but like that guy, uh, you know, he, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, he was at like the opening, right? He was sort of like the... No, 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 no. Don't, don't get me wrong. We had meetings with Steven. He had creative input, but... But on a day-to-day basis, you know, he was making movies. His his principal occupation was making movies. But he had uh, meaningful input on uh, on uh, the attractions at uh, Florida and on Islands of Adventure. Uh, well, a little less than Islands of Adventure, but still. Um, but he was involved, and and he's a great guy because uh, he is a creative guy, and he understands creative people, and and uh, I think he knows. He knows how to deal with creative people and how to give notes in a way that is is not offensive, you know. Uh, so he's 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 a great guy, and uh, I worked with him on. Uh, well, actually, I met him briefly from the film world first, uh, but by the time these attractions happened, I kind of knew him, and uh, I knew him enough that uh, Jurassic Park. Well, here's a great side story. So Jurassic Park. Um, the film was beginning production when they decided they wanted to do the ride. Uh, the idea that, that Universal hit me with when Peter Alexander met me over lunch was, you know, they were going to do, well, first they said, you got to read the scripts and it was under confidential. You could only read the script at Amblin. So I and two of my people went to Amblin. We were all given scripts. We read the scripts there. Um, and, but I had already read the book anyway. I'd read the book prior to Universal for calling me just because I was a fan of, of the author and, Jurassic Park sounded like a good book, and I'd already read it. So then they said, we want to develop a concept for a Jurassic Park ride. They said, and you read the script, and so we're going to do the Jeep ride. And I immediately said, well, I, I wouldn't do that Jeep ride, because the way Steven's going to shoot that, you know, uh, we'll never be able to, to get what he's going to get on film, because we don't have close-ups, and we don't have tracking shots, and we don't have all the things you use in, in film to, uh, to create that kind of energy. You know, we're going to have, you either have to have a, a bad Jeep ride uh, or you'd have to have a Jeep that's actually a coaster that underneath the mechanism and so that it can race through things. And then what's the point of building all these dinosaurs if, if you're going to race by them in, you know, in three seconds? Um, and uh, so they wanted, originally this was going to go in Florida. Originally Jurassic Park was going to open in Florida at Universal Studios. And T2 was going to open in the Conan Theater in Hollywood. Long story how that all changed. But uh, what I said was, uh, look, I, uh, I think you should make it a boat ride. And they're like, what? I said, yeah, why don't we make it a boat ride? Because there's a scene in the book where the kids, when they're escaping, they go through a boat ride that hasn't opened yet. And they go through there. Um, and uh, that's how they hide from those, from the, uh, from the, uh, from the spitters, I think. 
So uh, Peter was like, well, it's not in the movie, and blah, 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 blah. You know, my whole theory was when you do an attraction and you'll see that it's a Hallmark or you don't try and recreate the movie because you cannot recreate the movie. What you can do is you can take elements of the movie, find the same emotional engagement that the movie has with its audience, find those, those elements that make it, uh, that make the movie memorable, those beats, those, those things that, 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 that identify that story, that IP, if you want, you know, that brand, whatever you want to call it. What are the emotional connection points and how do you recreate them in a dimensional version? How do you make people feel they're part of it without trying to recreate things from the movie, which you just cannot duplicate as well as the movie can? So that's why in Conan, we didn't try and create a scene from the movie. We created our own story. But if you go to it, you have all the elements. You have wizards. You have a fire-breathing dragon. You have a sword. You have sword and sorcery. You have, you have all that stuff. And you hit, hit those beats. Well, with Jurassic, I said, I don't think you have to take it from the movie, we just, but let's take it from the, from the you know, mythology, from the original story. And God, they, they fought me. And, and, and I said, by the way, you need a boat ride in Florida anyway. It's Florida. You need a boat ride, a splashdown. It'll be fantastic. So Jay was like, okay, well, here's the problem. Who's going to tell Stephen? So I'll, I'll tell Stephen. Oh, you're going to call Stephen? I said, well, I, I don't know him well, but I know him from our respective movie careers and i can certainly call him and um i think he'll go for it because it's from the book if this was just something we were inventing out of whole cloth here hey how about a boat ride but if i tell him you know in the book the scene with the thing and the so Stephen was shooting i had to do it by phone because he was shooting i think in hawaii i don't no no it was actually i think he was in post-production on he was in post on jurassic while he was shooting um um, the World War II movie. The, uh, uh, Are you talking about Schindler's List? Yeah, Schindler. While well, he was shooting Schindler's List, so they they, they arranged for a call. I called him. Hey, Stephen, I know you're busy. Blah blah blah. He goes, yeah. So we're talking about Jurassic Park ride. I'll just take a minute. They want to do the Jeep ride, but I, I, I'm not sure the Jeep ride will ever be able to achieve what you're going to achieve on the film. And he says, so what are you thinking? I said, well, in the book, yes, you know, this is for Florida. He goes, yeah. Well, in the book. There is a boat ride that uh, they used to escape in. And it hasn't opened yet. He goes, oh, my God, great idea. He knew right away because, of course, he read the book. I said, so that's my idea. We take, like, the boat ride that is in the book, but that no one ever got to really see. And we use that as basically goes, I love it. Go for it. Okay, will you let Universal know? Yep. That was it. That's how it happened. So that's what I mean about Stephen being a great collaborator. I mean, I knew he'd read the book. Otherwise, he wouldn't be in the movie. And I knew that if it was based on something literary, I didn't know, but I was pretty sure that he would get it immediately. Whereas every executive not only didn't get it, but we're all afraid that Stephen wouldn't like it. And, and I was pretty convinced Stephen would love it, which he did. And that's a good example of how a great creative collaboration works and why working with someone like Stephen is great. And it doesn't mean it's because he agreed. It's because it all made sense. There's a logic to it that makes sense. And, and it, was, it was based in something, not, not nothing. And of course, if we call him and said, hey, you know, we think this is going to be great if we, you know, do a, I did, by the way, my one contribution to the ET ride, and it all went shitty from there, is my opinion. But, but when I met years before for Universal Studios, years before, when I was on planning stage, the ET ride, Peter would go to lunch with me and kind of pick my brain. And he goes, well, we're going to do an ET ride. 
and uh, we think it should be a boat ride, like Small World. And I said, just immediately, like, no, it should. You should get on a bike, and you should travel with ET. And he went, you think so? I said, well, yeah, that's that's the connection to the movie. Yeah, so yeah my one, did you see the movie? Like, <laughs> yeah, you know, and. I said, because I wanted to say what, what a guy like Stephen would have said. What the fuck are you doing a boat ride for? That's that's what he would have said. But I said it for him. <laughs> you know, um, so little that I know the boat ride would become, you know, whatever it was, six in a row or eight in a row and on a big platform. And, you know, just uh, at a certain point, I think it lost its charm. I think I would have approached it differently. But by the way, my idea was completely different. My idea was, check this out. You would get on the boat and you would get on the bike. And you would follow E.T. into space and you would land on his home planet. But my idea was the home planet was what Tom Sawyer's Island was to Disneyland originally. It's actually a planet. You get off the bike and after you've traveled through space. You get off the bike on the green planet. And you're now in this interactive play world for kids with interactive fountains and with plants and with, you know, you know all kinds of things that would be for kids could climb and they could, you know, all this kind of stuff. And... Um, that was my idea. Use the bike the way they use the rafts to take you to the island at Tom Sawyer's, and you would use the bike to take you to the Green Planet. So, um, was the was the practicality of getting off was that sort of why that never happened? Because that ride, you just always stay on the bike, and then you get off at the end. No, I, I think uh, I think that no, that wouldn't have been a problem at all. I don't think that would have been easy to handle. I think it was just creatively uh, they 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 had a different creative team on that, and they wanted to create this. Uh, this green planet world with all that. I just would have done it all differently. The, the, the green planet would have had real green foliage instead of all that acrylic stuff. Uh, to me, it was a vast, even if you've kept the same ride, once you got to the green planet, it should have had trees and it should have had plants and flowers and not just these big plastic acrylic ones. And the other thing they didn't account on is the width of that damn ride meant that everything was so far apart from you in there that it really couldn't, you couldn't really feel like you were in it which by the way was the genesis for the spider everyone says how did the spider-man ride you know well when i got assigned it was originally going to be a superman ride it goes all the way back to dc but but then when it became marvel and and uh, spider-man was going to be the key ride stage said spider-man has to be the the main ride i said okay so <clears throat> i'm a superhero fan i grew up on dc comics and then marvel comics i still have my fantastic four number one and uh several others um and so I knew I knew the Marvel universe forwards and backwards. And um, so you sit down and do a ride, and you have to make this is before the movie, by the way. And uh, so, what do you have to figure out? Well, if you're going to be in a, in a if you're going to be in a superhero ride, you got to be in it. You got to be. This, this has to be done in a way that will make everything very impactful in your face action. Well, with rides, as soon as you do a dark ride, and by the way, I was in the midst of T2 3D, so we'd already solved a, solved a lot of problems uh, or challenges of T2 3D and how we're going to make the 3D work with the live actors and how we're going to make that work in a theater and how we're going to do all these different things. We're in the middle of all that. So um, Spider-Man comes along, and when you look at your options, it can be an it, it can be a. Do you remember if you had wings at Disney? Do you remember that at Disney World? If you had wings, if you had wings, if you. Do you remember that ride? I uh, uh, I don't actually. Weird. It was when the park first opened. Eastern Airlines sponsored it. it. Was in Tomorrowland. It was all done with cutout sets and projections, 2D projections. Okay. 
So, so I say, well, you could do that. You could do a dark ride with black light, but that's going to be really crappy. You could do some kind of um, version of an animatronic ride, but imagine animatronic Spider-Man fighting an animatronic goblin. Just sucks. So and the other thing with a ride is nothing can come. You have a, an envelope three feet beyond the reach of a person of a ride above and to the side. So six feet from, from, six feet from the end of a, the two rides and six feet above you, nothing can block that environment because of safety issues. So how are you going to make something be in your face? And it just came to me. 3D, 3D, 4D. We're going to build a dark ride. And the only way to bring things in your face is 3D in a ride is 3D because it can be in your face because it's not there. You know, it's an illusion. There's nothing actually impeding your way or impeding the ride system that could harm you. So that's how we started on the journey. But it's interesting. I always try and find you have to start with not the technology, start with what is right for the ride. What story are you telling? Is this a story better told in a dark ride? Is this a story better told uh, with a coaster? Is this a story better told? You know, what's the what's the best way in? So. So I went to them with the idea of a 3D, 4D dark ride and everyone in the meeting names shall not be mentioned uh, except for Jay. We're like. This is stupid. This can't happen. Blah, 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 blah. All the doubters, all the stuff, all the reasons you can't do something. By the way, that's your biggest role in life when you're a creative guy is, is, <laughs> is fighting everyone who wants to kill it. Um, I bet. You, know, you, can, you can always find a reason to kill something. You yeah. always can. You oh, can yeah. always find a reason to kill it. So, um, so Jay was like, well... Tell me about this. Now, you understand, I'm the only guy in a room of show designers that can talk film, 3D. I can talk effects. I can talk staging. I can talk live entertainment. I can talk rides. I, for some reason in my career, I had done all of these. I'd worked in all of these mediums. So um, at one point, I even, you know, again, I will not mention the name, but, but several of the people that take credit for Spider-Man today actually said, well, how's 3D going to work? 3D, how's it going to follow you when you're in a ride? I said, you understand 3D is an illusion, right? It, it will. It will follow you. I mean, to a certain degree. It won't follow you for 30 feet. But, but for, the, for the 5, 10, 15 seconds, whatever we're on it, yeah, it'll be fine. But what do you mean? You know, people are in different places. I said, it is an illusion. It's when you look at the screen through the glasses, the 3D image appears where you place it based upon the interocular. And it will... It will move with you within reason. Yeah, of course, there's a certain point at which it, will, it won't work. But originally, when we started this, because you have to be budget conscious, I was thinking of an Omnimover. So the Omnimover, you know, from Haunted Mansion, those rides. With an Omnimover, I could make your eyes the camera. I could turn you into the scene when I wanted you, and I could turn you out of the scene when I wanted to. So that was the cheap solution prior to us coming up with the idea of a, of a simulator on, on a track. So. So that was that was the start of it. But I, I guess the reason I brought it up was was simply to say that too many ride designers today, show designers, they start out with a new technology. They think, oh, we got this technology, so we're, now we're going to figure out a ride to use it on. So it's backwards. That's how you wind up with the first uh, with the first Harry Potter ride, which I didn't think was actually a very good ride, to be honest. Great, great theming, great cue. 
but as a ride, like, I don't know, who was that ride for? Was it for teenagers? Was it for adults? Or was it for little kids? Who was it for? So um, that was where they found a technology and they said, now we're going we're gonna to build a ride around it. And what they should have done, because think about it, they didn't want to do 3D, 4D again. And I understand. But on that particular, on Harry Potter, if ever there was a story that you could have used 3D with the, with the bolts and the blasts and the magic and the illusions. And the, I mean, God, there were so many things you could have done with that that would have been phenomenal. Didn't, anyway, they, so um, just, didn't they for that? Because uh, you're talking about the Forbidden Journey, correct? Yeah. For, uh, didn't they transition that over in Hollywood to 3D? But then I thought they also transitioned it back to 2D because too many people were uh, commenting like it was so much motion sickness just because of that particular ride vehicle, which is yeah, insane. That you that's a perfect example of how you can't, you can't fix it later because it wasn't designed with that technology in mind. Gotcha. And, and so... Uh, I think I think someone realized, wow, we really should be using 3D because it would jazz this up. No, actually, you should have come up with the ride you wanted to do, the story you wanted to tell in the in the best possible way to represent that. And then you should have found the technology to make it work. That's, that's really how it should go down. That's interesting. That's sort of like how a lot of movies will film in 2D and then and then later on they'll post convert into 3D. And Yeah, it's not, and it's never the same. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the one the one example and I think this is a perfect segue because um this is really why I uh, you know, I was really excited to get you on and just to hear your, you know, your whole story but to to really kind of zero in on this. Um the one person that I think can can, can successfully uh, post-convert a film into 3D is James Cameron and, of course, his team. But uh, he did that with Titanic back in 2012, and then he re-released T2 not that long ago in theaters in 3D. And I thought it was the the I thought it was the perfect blend of because if you took your glasses off, I noticed that uh, half the film was still in 2D and only very subtle amounts of 3D was added. And I think that's I think that's the the real uh, strong point that uh, that you know, Cameron realized with the, with the post converting. Um, but of course this segues into T2 3d and, uh, this podcast at one point was dedicated strictly to Terminator. And I actually, I think it was for episode 40. I had four members of that cast come back on and we did a, like a T2 3d reunion. And, um, it was Mark Matthews, uh, Jeff, uh, Brozovich, uh, Kiana Politis and Jason Latona, and oh, cool. yeah, and they came on and uh, it was a great episode and uh, not to kiss, not to kiss ass because you're on the other end of the line. But seriously, Gary, that that attraction was my all time favorite attraction. And now I'm a little biased because Terminator is is very near and dear to my heart. But something about that attraction was just so like I would literally go to Universal just to get on that and then I would leave and it was so heartbreaking that that it got taken out by in Florida, at least it got taken out by the Bourne show. But um, that's getting ahead of myself. I really wanted to kind of figure out like how that kind of came into your lap, because, again, that was just such a, a revolutionary kind of attraction. Well, um, that came to me because uh, once again, the. Uh... Uh, the old Conan, well, the Dracula Conan Theater, uh, they wanted to put an attraction in there, a new one, because they'd taken Conan out. Um, 
and they were using it for I don't know game shows or something. It was really stupid. Anyway, so um, Jay had an idea. He wanted to make a stunt show based on Terminator, and uh, so uh, he brought me in, and, and, and he said, you know, I want to do a Terminator thing, and 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 you know, Jay always liked things that had. <laughs> In the in the Jay Bangs book, you can read the Ten Commandments of Show Design for uh, for uh, for Universal that I wrote. Uh, but of course, I never showed it to Jay until until they did this book. Because I told the writer, I said, "Well, you know, I had the Ten Commandments, but it was it was kind of an internal joke with me and people that worked for me in our projects." Um, but if you if you knew Jay, you knew you were kind of it was kidding on the square in, in a way. You want to hear a couple of them? Yeah, go ahead. The Ten Commandments for writing a Universal Studios attraction. Thou shalt honor the rule of the J-Bangs. Now, J-Bangs were with J, you learned after a while, this was our nickname for him. Whenever you had a concept, you had to come in with six or eight big moments. The story was less important. What, what were, and it's not a bad way to create a theme park attraction, by the way, but it's kind of evolved over time. What is going to happen? So when I say J-Bangs, you'll get it. <clears throat> Thou shalt, uh, number one. Thou shalt honor the rule of the J-Bangs and keep them wholly burned into thy brain ever and always. And never shalt thou stray from them or thou wilt face the withering scorn and bellowing angry rage of hell itself. Two, thou shalt cut to the chase. For truly there is nothing to be gained by the writing of long dialogue scenes which causes the audience to become bored and frustrated and which may cause them to leave with the park early. For is it not written that we must take every penny from each guest before they depart the hallowed grounds? Therefore, cut to the chase without mercy and thou might retain thy job. <laughs> That's a good one. Number three, thou shalt not kill unless thee devises the most grisly and spectacular death that shall bring the masses to their feet and spontaneous cries of ecstasy and pleasure. Number four, as sure as the rains fall from heaven, so too shalt thou ensure that creatures with huge pointed teeth or razor-sharp fangs find favor in your script, and blessed be he who will see that such creatures shall drip venom or blood as often as possible. For truly, such writing will be praised from the rooftops of the high black tower. Honor the well-timed explosion and spread them as you would seeds for the fall harvest. For hath it not been written in stone that a universal show with no explosion is like a stillborn calf who will never see the light of day? Therefore, be generous in thy use of pyrotechnics, knowing that explosions are to our attractions as manna from the heaven is to the parched and the starved. Number six, thou shalt cut to the chase again and again and yet again. For should your writing ever slow down the action, even for a moment, then surely you will be damned and you will be as with the plague and thou shalt be written up and reprimanded and sent away to labor in the fields of crowd control or churro sales. But it goes on from there. Anyway, the idea with the shows for Universal was they had to be bold. They had to have a lot of action. They had to uh, grab the audience by the balls, basically. And yet they had to be family attractions. So the challenge with Terminator ultimately was, how do you create a family attraction uh, for an R-rated movie exactly. and, and make it feel like it's still part of the whole mythology? Um, but that's getting ahead of myself. So what happened was we got this assignment, wanted to do a stunt show. And, um, and I... We gave them a proposal, they approved it, and we, we sit down to do it. And I'm starting to think about it. Now you're thinking about it like, shit, what's this going to be? Some Arnold lookalike hitting some guy in a tinfoil outfit? I mean, seriously, that's going to be bad. And um, well, you it, know, part, of the, part sorry, of the creative process is sorry. you have to go. Sorry, no, no, go ahead. Was it always T2, or did you ever consider the first film? 
No, I'll tell you how it became T2. It's part of the story. Oh, okay. Sorry. So, so, uh, so we start on this and, and I think Adam Bizark was working with me then and Ty Granaroli and a few others. So I'd have these meetings. We go, okay, what, you know, any ideas and, you know, and all the ideas are bad, you know, stunt show. Cause we kept thinking stunt show, stunt show. Whenever you can't come up with an idea for something like that, it probably means it's a bad idea. So I said that I said, you know, well, we can't do a stunt show because a stunt show is not going to work. It, you know, we got the late, this is the days of laser discs, you know? So uh, we got the laser discs for, for, for Terminator and for Terminator two. And I watched Terminator two over and over and over again. And uh, it's a series of chases, you know, one chase after another, either on foot or on motorcycles or on trucks or on a helicopter, or whatever, you know? So I started thinking, well, we, we need to use film in this somehow because there's no other way to get this. Da, 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 da. Anyway, now the day's coming up for the uh, for the presentation, the first presentation of our rough ideas, and we still have nothing that I could nothing I could get behind. I can sell and pitch almost anything if I believe in it, but if I don't believe in it, I can't pitch it because if I can't sit there and say I believe this will work, then I don't want to. I don't want the words to come out of my mouth. So I think we're like. 48 hours out, two, three, four days, and I meet with the guys again. And Adam actually says, well, maybe you just have to tell them that, uh, you know, we couldn't come up with something. <laughs> I look and I'm like, oh, so someone else can come in and do something? No, I'm, I'm not going to do that. I mean, there's some kind of solution here. And, you know, desperation is the mother of, of invention. In theater, when you're growing up, there's a game called the if game. And the if game is... Uh, whenever you can't get yourself to a certain point, you use the magic if. Well, if I was a bank robber, what would I? If I was a billionaire, if I was a fish, you know, and the magic if allows up. So so I went to, uh, I always do my best thinking in restaurants and coffee shops. And I went out that night by myself with my little notepad. All right, if I could do anything, what would I do? If I could do anything, if I could do anything, I would have that motorcycle leap from the screen into the audience. Because I'd already been thinking screen. I hadn't been thinking 3D yet. And then I thought, oh, well, that could work. Because I knew that could work. Because there's a magic trick where a screen moves up, a performer walks off the movie into the theater. It's, that was done, God, 50 years ago at the Seattle World's Fair. Um, and because there's a moving image behind it, you don't see the break in the screen. So I knew it could be done. I just didn't know if the break could be big enough for a motorcycle to go through without you noticing it. As it turns out, it can. Um, but, but, uh, but I hadn't thought that far through yet. Then I, but then I started thinking, well, well, what if we use 3D? And what if the metal guy, the T-1000, what, what if he came off the screen and then became a real person? Those two ideas, the motorcycle off the screen and the metal, the T-1000 liquid metal pouring out towards you, circling around then, and then forming on the stage and that being the actual guy. Those two images came to mind. And then I went, in my book, I remember writing T2 3D, Terminator 2 3D, 3D. What can we do with 3D? So I outlined those two ideas and a few other thoughts. Had a meeting with the guys next day. So I think I've got it. It's, it's Terminator 2 3D. We're going to use 3D and live actors. And we're going to actually make this thing come alive on stage. 
and I don't have this, this, the story yet. I don't have the whole piece. I don't have Act 1, Act 2, Act 3 yet, but I have two or three big moments, J-bang moments that I know Jay will like, and if he'll let us proceed. But this is no longer, a, I said, the key here is it's not a stunt show. This is going to be a kind of a special effects media show with some stunts in them. And that's the big idea. And if Jay will buy off and let us go in this direction, this is where I want to head. Had the meeting with Jay the next day. Pitch, I had a little bit more to it then. In fact, I could probably dig that up. I had a little bit more meat on the bone, but not much. But I had these big moments. And Jay was like, you know, Jay was a no-nonsense guy. He could always smell if you're bullshitting him. If you're bullshitting him, he would go after you. He, was, he did not mince words. But I always knew to stay on his side because there were, there were two ways to handle Jay. One was have your shit together. The other one is if you don't know something, admit it and tell them you'll get the answer in the next you know, day or two. Don't, don't, don't move ahead on a false premise. So um, I pitched him the basic idea. This is a different idea. It's not exactly a stunt show. There are some stunts in it, but it's going to be different. We're going to combine 3D with live actors. We're going to make a show no one's ever seen before. And these are some of the big moments. And this is how it kind of would work. I don't have it worked out because I need your go-ahead to pursue this before I go too much further with it. Because if you say, no, I want a stunt show, then I guess we won't do this. This is not a pure stunt show. So I had a few rough sketches and I showed him the, the idea of the 3D film of the guy on the motorcycle and it coming through the screen and hitting the stage. I showed him some sketches, black and white sketches of the idea of the liquid metal. And he looked at me and goes, you think this will work? I said, Jay, it'll work. How's it going to work? I said, it's 3D film. So 3D film, this is what happens, blah, blah, blah. Da, da, da. He goes, well, how's it going to work when he comes to life? I said, well, the only space where everyone in the audience sees the same thing, exactly the same, is right at the screen line. So, for instance, that guy will have to appear right at the screen line because that's the only area that everyone will actually see him as if he's materializing. And secondly, the way this will work is we know that a guy can walk through a screen. We don't know if a motorcycle can. But, Jay, if a, if a guy can walk through a screen uh, and, and, you know, walk from a movie out live on stage, there's got to be a way to do it with a screen, uh, with, with a motorcycle as well. It's just a whole different thing. Anyway, he asked me a few more penetrating questions. He felt I had my shit together and said, all right. All right, you see if you can make this work. Go ahead, go this direction, see what can happen. That's how it started. So I want to say once again, I go through the laser discs. I I absorb what the essence of the T2. Oh, oh, by this time, by the way, it had to be T2 because of contractual difficulties. Different different uh, IP owners own Terminator, and they only could get the rights through Gale and Heard and a company that was going out of business at the time, Corelco Films, of T2. So he said, everything has to come from T2. Oh, that's right, T2. So, which was okay, because that's the way we were going. So we really bored down on T2 at that point. Um, and, um, and the point of all this is that, as with the Spider-Man ride, with T2, you start with, how are you going to best get that emotional engagement, that connection to that movie in this different medium? And you start, trying to find ideas. And every idea that doesn't, doesn't meet that challenge, you get rid of. You, you're not going to put a, an, Arnold, an Arnold lookalike on stage with a guy in a, in, in a tinfoil outfit representing the T-1000 and have anything that isn't laughable. So all of those initial ideas 
a fake car stunt, a fake car check. You just go, okay, these are all horrible ideas. But there's always a way in. You find the way in, and then you find the technology to help to help you get there, to make that story come to life. That's how it's supposed to be done. And unfortunately, most Imagineers and most uh, designers today don't understand that. They, they think it's about the technology. It's not about the technology. It's about the story. It's about the experience. It's about putting people in the middle. That's what, by the way, that's what we do. We're, we're an immersive medium. We put people into worlds that they can't do at home. They can't do online. They can't do it at the movies. That's our edge. Our edge is we give visceral, immersive experiences that can't be done anywhere else. And uh, that's why you have to be familiar with technologies. I, I, I never profess to be an expert. I work with all the experts. But I know enough about all these things to know what kind of technology is there. And, and I always believe if there's a basic technology there, we know we can push it. We can push it and shape it to more than it's been because it already exists. I think that's the fundamental difference with Disney and Universal. At Universal, we were not allowed to have an R&D department. We had to figure this stuff out, bring in a team of experts, get them to buy in. And then any R&D was done on their, on their tab. As part of their proposal, they had to you know, figure out how to make it work. And uh, Disney spends a lot of money, and I, I give them credit for that. I'm not saying it's a fault to have a huge R&D department to do nothing but come up with all these incredible ideas for effects and technologies. But remember, that started out with, with, uh, uh, with Yale Gracie. <laughs> Yale Gracie was back there with chewing gum and, 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 and paper clips and Kodak carousel projectors. The whole haunted mansion was created with little worrying motor, little motors from fans and, you know, very low tech stuff. Um, but it worked. So, uh, bottom line, I guess I'm wandering here a bit, but to pull it all together, uh, I knew whatever I did would have to be approved by James Cameron. So I knew whatever I did had to break the mold and it had to be true to his, uh, his, the high bar that, 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 that he uses for his motion pictures and, and, and it had to be true to, to what he'd created and yet be different which could lead me into another story. And that's the story of the first presentation to Jim Cameron. Um, but uh, you might have other questions first. No, what I was going to say was um, it also really did make a lot of sense. So it is good that you landed on T2 because this came out in um, uh, 96 and uh, it would have been really weird. I think for audiences to have gone from seeing the Terminator in 84 Terminator two in 91. And then here's this new Terminator attraction that, really it would have made a lot of sense to a lot of people oh okay so maybe this is potentially the third terminator film oh wait hold on now we're back at terminator one so it 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 really was a like a real genius kind of idea plus the fact that terminator 2 is more i guess you could say family friendly rated r versus the first terminator is real dark and right and horror like like, like there's a lot of horror in that first film so um it was a genius idea to do T2 3D and then to to really try to kind of construct it in such a way that it could act as a um I think in the way that it's described in the in the making of the of the attraction, it's like a stepping stone for a third film. And well, well it was in our minds once we went into this with the idea 
that we had to get Arnold involved and get Arnold involved. We had to get Jim involved, but we, but we couldn't just, you know, you can't demand it. Those are, uh, by the way, up until T2 3D, no star would be in a theme park thing. For instance, uh, uh, Marty McFly was not in Back to the Future. They did get Christopher Lloyd, but stars just at that point thought, you know, I'm not doing some theme park attraction. That's going to, that's going to lower my, my, uh, you know, my prestige. Uh, but T2 3D changed all that because we brought in, Arnold was the biggest star in the world at the time. So um, what happened was we had to pitch to Jim and we knew to get Arnold, we'd have to have Jim, but we didn't know if we could get it. The pitch was done in the basement of uh, the Black Tower building. Um, and so it was for, uh, so Jim could just drive into the underground parking lot and walk right in. We had all of our boards. We've been working on it for probably about a year. We had storyboards of the whole thing. We had sequences. We had color art. I mean, universal. We had gotten far beyond concept. We got into a script and doing the whole thing. And um, and it all hinged on Jim saying yes. And so Jim came in. And, you know, I had met him once before briefly, again, because of the movie thing. And I reminded him. And he said, oh, yeah, Master's Universe. Cool. So, uh, so then we sat down. It was just him. It was... Uh, Barry Epson, it was uh, Ron Bensian. Um, I don't think Jay was there. Um, trying to think of, it was a very small group. Uh, so I said, uh, and Jim was 45 minutes late. So, you know, so we all, we get into it and I pitch it and I take him through the whole thing. I take him through the whole board. I take him through everything. It's probably about a 20 or 30 minute pitch of the whole show. I explained him up front. I gave him all my, con I did, by the way, you need a presentation. Context is important. I said, Jim, this is a new kind of concept. So you'll have to roll with me. It's going to be live performers with 3D film. So as I go through here, I will refer to certain 3D moments and I will refer to live actors. And, and so it's a combination. Uh, I had a, some sketches of the, of the, the basic stage, kind of what it would look like. And um, I think we even maybe had a foam core model there of the environment just to, to let him know what, what he was going to be looking at. And um, so uh, I said, uh, we wanted to be true to your story. We also are set, set slightly ahead because, of course, uh, uh, what's his name? The kid, the, the, the kid would be older now. And uh, so here's here's where we're set. We're set. Uh, we, we set it exactly where the age of uh, the actor was. What's his name now? I'm blanking on all this. Uh, Connor. Edward Furlong? John Connor. Oh, John okay, Connor. okay. So John Connor was now, what, whatever, five or six years older than he was when he made the movie, or, or, right? So I said, because of the way the story is, we're here. We're six years in the future. Um, because theoretically, if we do this, that's the age John will be, and, and we want to use him. So take the whole thing. At the very end, silence there's that deadly silence that you hate when you do a pitch it's like okay there's an awkward silence like and jim is looking at the boards and looking at everything and um i start i, I try to break the silence i go I, I i could and he cuts me off kind of moves his hand like moves his hand like don't say anything and he says just a second and he walks up and he really peers close to the storyboards he goes his first words were these are really good boards. Who did these? I said, oh, his name's Greg Pro, and, and he's a young guy, and we use him a lot. And uh, you know, these boards are really good. He goes, actually, this whole thing's pretty good. He goes, he turns around now, looks at the all of us, 
says, I got to tell you, when I was dri- driving over here, I just kept thinking, what the fuck am I doing? Who the fuck are these people? Universal. They're going to do a theme park ride, a roller coaster or something with my, with my brand. And he said, I was fully prepared to not like whatever you showed me. But I have to say, this is pretty damn good. He said, you know, you got the mythology. You got the story. You got the characters. It all, it all really, it all really works. And he says, "Not that I could make it a little better." I laughed. <laughs> Absolutely, man. And uh, that broke the ice. And then we started talking about the show. And then he goes, "Well, what are you going to do about, you know, this these sequences with Arnold?" And I said, "Well, um, you know, there's two ways to go. Uh, one way is to go with doubles." And he goes, no, you can't have double. I said, well, yeah, well, that's the second way. <laughs> he says, you have to have Arnold. I said, that's the second way. That's the preferred way. He goes, we'll get Arnold and Linda and we'll, we'll get everybody. And I thought, holy shit, this thing's going to happen. So uh, that was a great meeting. And, uh, and, I, and I struck up a great relationship with Jim from then on. And Jim was uh, beginning to roll into pre-production on Titanic at the time. And uh, he said, you know, I'm not going to be available a lot because I've got this Titanic thing I'm doing and blah, blah, blah. And everything. But we had several more creative meetings before he was lost to us to, uh, to Mexico uh, and to Titanic. And he was always very good. And he, uh, he, we did a rewrite with him. We went over to his office at Lightstorm on a weekend one time. We went over every line and, and he, he would input and he would do things. And, and then he did come back around. He, he, he made himself available for the green screen shoot where we brought Linda in. And, uh, and Eddie Furlong to do the shoot, shoots that were going to be incorporated into the 3D uh, film on the screens later uh, to make it appear that the live actors in the theater were actually those two running around down below. Uh, so uh, it was a very complex process from then on on several occasions. This, was, this project was the joke of Universal for quite a while until Jim got involved. And even then at certain key points, certain people there uh, tried to kill it. But every time there was a problem, uh, I would just call Jim secretly and go, uh, Jim, if you could make this meeting on Monday, Universal would be helpful because there's this, this, and this. He goes, okay, got it. So we had our own little code. He was a 2,000-pound gorilla, and he could say things that I couldn't say, but I would prep him for you know, where the problems were. And, um, and then... Uh, is it safe to say that without James Cameron on board, it may not have happened? Oh, without a doubt, on so many levels. And not only that, the quality would have been cheapened at several points along the way had he not been there. But he knew he knew that I was the guy fighting for it. So he said, uh, this is so weird how life works. Uh, we've, we've been in close contact. Now we're going to move into f- to final design and, and, and uh, in the beginning of actual design and production. And I happened to sit behind him at a Cirque du Soleil. Back when Cirque du Soleil was on, down at the Santa Monica Beach in the tent, I had tickets for the opening night, and so did he, apparently. And um, it turns out that he's sitting right in front of me. And this will tell you how good of friends we were by that point. He had a bucket of popcorn. And I reached, he didn't know it was me yet. And I reached over his shoulder, and I just said, hey, can I have some of your popcorn? And he was like, uh, yeah, guy, yeah, I guess. And then he sees us me. And he laughs, and I laugh. And he goes, hey, your friends at Universal called me the other day. I said, really? He goes, yeah. They wanted to know 
what I thought about, you know, they, they, they were very complimentary. Gary. Yeah, they said, you're, you're a genius and you're really good at what you do, but you're really a concept guy. And, you know, you've, uh, you've taken this as far as you can. And they, they kind of felt that they universal could, uh, could proceed ahead without, without you and just proceed ahead with me. And I said, really? I said, so what did you say? He said, well, and they asked me what I, what I thought. I said, so what did you say? He said, well, here's what I think. I think this whole fucking idea is Gary Goddard's. And I think this whole fucking thing has been driven by him. And I think this whole fucking thing is being made to happen because of him, because he knows what the fuck is going on. That's what I think. Wow. So what do you get? And, and they were like, oh, okay. And they had been holding up my contract for two and a half weeks with bullshit. And that, that's why they were trying to work me out. And, and Jay and, 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 and of course, Jay didn't know anything about it because he was halfway out the door by then. It was Ron Benson, but it wasn't Ron either. I think it was it was all the guys that resented me in design. There, they they they, they didn't like having outside guys. They really thought they could do everything. But uh, but Cameron really backed me at a critical moment, and that's why I was able to see the project through. Um, and there's no doubt, had he not done that the entire show would have been compromised. It would have never been, look, you can't do a show like that unless you understand theater, live stage, film, 3D, special effects, lighting, technical, audio. You have to understand all those things to bring them together to make a thing like that. And that's what, you know, most executives, they, they don't, they do not get it. Yeah, yeah, it's well, it, it, it's sort of like when you think of a like 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 a film producer, like like if you're strictly talking about just a movie, it seems like the producer is always the person that just doesn't really understand, and you have everyone else behind them that that is really kind of pushing for this thing and and really trying to take these leaps and bounds, and and uh, I just like seriously, I have to congratulate you on that attraction. I think that might be the magnum opus, really, because it's. It's uh, like you said, it's it's this insane combination of so many different elements. And uh, the fact that you were able to take a an R rated series and, you know, tame it down a little bit so that it is uh, family friendly, but not to the point where it didn't feel completely different. It still felt very much in the world. Um and 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 just the idea of going from a like like a presentation at Cyberdyne, so to 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 kind of make it seem like this is something that is in in our world, and to see this presentation, and then to have it go from from that to Sarah and John hacking it, and then you go into the auditorium for the final demonstration, and everything about it was genius. The only thing, and I just want to get your input on this, is uh, that. There were a couple things, and I, and I know why it was because it was a theme park attraction. But were, were there ever uh, talks about how it sort of, kind of messed with the mythology just a little bit? The fact that he could come through completely clothed on a yes. on a motorcycle. Yes, <laughs> yes. yes. Uh, actually, uh, Jim and I would would joke about things like that because we felt like uh, not joke in a bad way, a good way. Uh, because we did begin to feel Jim was the one who said this is gonna this is this is wind up being T two T Terminator two and a half two point five um, because he said what he'd do is uh, he would uh, he would he would change the the thing they would make improvements in it so they could come through with the clothes with the equipment because I had said you know I had a whole idea for for the third sequel why in the third sequel why can't that thing open up and it becomes War of the Worlds, where basically they've perfected how to bring the machines in, bring all the machines through. 
And he said, don't tell me anymore because uh, that's getting too close to what I'm thinking of. I said, okay. I didn't tell him anymore. But of course, he didn't get to do the next one after that. That was done by other people. But, but oh, someone's just ringing my doorbell. Can you take a break on your machine? Yeah. Okay, I'll be right back. Okay. Okay, I'm back. Okay. So where were we? Uh, you were talking about um, like we were still talking about the uh, like the kind of conflict with uh, the whole coming through fully clothed and. Yeah. Okay. So. Uh, yes, we did discuss that specifically, and Jim said, you know, uh, it's okay. It's okay. It's a it's an attraction for theme parks. We have to do this, but also. He said, there's nothing to say that the technology couldn't have changed and that they couldn't have brought things to. And that triggered me saying, yeah, I had this idea for a kind of a War of the Worlds thing. And that's when he, he cut me off and said, don't say anymore. So, uh, so yeah, it, it wasn't, it was, uh, it was conscious, you know, and Jim agreed. Interesting. Very interesting. Yeah, that was the only thing that, like, really ever kind of, uh, if there was one thing that always just sort of stuck in the back of my head, I was like, Ah, it just stinks that this is a theme park attraction because I would have loved to have, you know, really kind of kept that going. But it it made complete sense, and honestly, it's still the it's the, it's the third best Terminator after all that has that you know that has come out, whether it's the films or the the television series, and and uh, a lot of people hold true to that. And um, is there is there a I don't know what the word is. Is there a in creating a theme park attraction, knowing that it does have an expiration date, is there sort of a negativity to that? Like, 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 is that ever in the back of your head, knowing that at, you know at some point this is going to cease to exist and it'll only at that point ever be a memory? Because really, a lot of times these things aren't filmed. You know what I mean? Like, you can't find a professional almost like blu-ray quality version of this entire attraction so really it kind of lives on just in the memory yeah well i guess that's maybe that's good in some ways although you know i think we all look for i mean the monster mansion that i did for six flags is still running we did that in 1981 and they asked us to come in about 10 years ago to rehab it to bring it back up to speed which we did so it's great when something becomes multi-generational like that you know haunted mansion pirates of the caribbean 
I think Spider-Man, I don't see why Spider-Man shouldn't live for forever if they take care of it, because that's, you know, it's, uh, it's another reason that when you do these things that you don't just copy the movie, you, you, you try and create something that can live on its own. It has, it has its own context and its own existence. What we try to do in all of our attractions, if it's Spider-Man or if it's T2 or Jurassic Park, we try and put things in there for the true fans who will, who will get, who will get that, they will get that the creators of this attraction get the mythology. But then we also have to make sure that someone who's never heard of Jurassic Park or never heard of Terminator, that when they come into it, they can get enough information to bring them in and be part of it as well. The trick is to find out how to do that without turning off the fans, making it too simplistic and not making it too technically correct so that the, the person who knows, knows nothing about the mythology is completely confused. That's the, 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 the kind of delicate balance you have to, to always be dealing with when you're dealing with theme park attractions. Gotcha. Yeah, it's yeah, it's a fine line that I guess that you have to kind of walk and and uh, I don't know, like that's just always stuck in the back of my head. Like the people that create this, so specifically you, you're uh, you know you're really kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place because for the time being it's going to be you know the most revolutionary thing, and then you know something else will come out that'll sort of maybe outdated. And honestly, the only thing about that attraction that besides like the little nitpicky things like the like the 3D I I was always bummed that they never kind of updated the 3D so towards the end of the run of of uh, T23D I never wore the glasses I just always kept them off because the you know I honestly felt like I could see more without the 3D glasses it it, it be it kind of became really distracting with that uh, particular kind of 3D because it had made such an advancement from 1996 you know yeah well that's true but the 3D and the third act with the CG, with the, the you, you can't get better than that. That, that, that was, the, yes, that was that very good. Million, that thing came right out in your face. Man. Yes. It was unbelievable. I definitely have to say that, that uh, when that happened, I put the 3D glasses back on. But for the film itself, I kind of just took them off and, and watched the, the 2D, I guess you could call it. But, um, yeah. And uh, what are your thoughts on the fact that it got taken out by Bourne? Because, I mean, at least it didn't get taken out by Minions like it did in Hollywood. That always hurt oh. me. Oh, that just killed me. That Minions thing. That, what a, what a, God. you know, it would have been less for them to just spend a little more money and rehab T2 3D and bring it back up to speed. But yeah, whatever, whatever, you know, the powers that be, you know, um, that Minions, that ride is, uh, I'm sure it's very popular with kids and that's fine, you know, but I, I don't know why they had to take T two three. They could have they could have put that in any little cheapo theater they could have put up. But uh yeah, it was disappointing. It is disappointing to see them go, you know, but but when you do attractions that last 10, 15, 20 years or some 30 years or more now, you know, that's still that's it makes you feel pretty good actually. And uh, what about the the one in Florida that got taken out by? Uh, it, I think it's opened. I haven't been back since they opened it, but the Born Stuntacular. I mean, at least it's still, from my understanding, that hasn't opened yet. That hasn't opened yet, has it? Oh, I I don't know. I, thought, I don't think uh, it opened. Uh, it, it'll, I'm interested to see it. They say it's going to be the most advanced media. Blah blah blah. You know, we'll see. Um, they don't have a if they don't have a single guiding. Uh, creative guy who understands all the medium i'm not sure it'll live up to the hype but maybe it will look hey i'm the first i'm very critical people know that but i'm the first guy when i like 
when I saw the Pirates ride in Shanghai, I came out going, that is a great ride. That is a great ride. Same thing on Tron. So no one wants to be swept away more than me. And I think in Harry Potter, I'm, I'm really impressed with the theming and with the details that, that, that the motion picture art director brought to it. And obviously, you know, J.K. Rowling has power that none of us have. She, she basically said, you're going to do this right or you're not going to do it. So you have to respect that. Um, I was disappointed in the, uh, the first ride. Um, uh, the second ride, somewhat better. But again, because they don't really understand the mediums, they screw up. The whole idea, what's that one called? The second one? What do they call that one? The Escape from Gringotts. Yeah, good idea. Great opening. When that thing tilts down, that's that's a good use of projection with with a ride device. You know that how you're you're stuck there for a minute and they're casting a spell and suddenly, wham, down you go. But as a person who does both film and 3D and theater and everything, why would you design a coaster ride to stop in front of a series of proscenium arches? I mean, it's like you're supposed to immerse the people in it, not have them. You might as well be on, on the old pirates of the Caribbean, you know, where you're sitting out here looking at something happening over there. They, they, they because they had big uh, dome screens, for some reason they felt they had to see them from the side and stop you there instead of designing an attraction that would use the motion and use the movement and use those things to enhance. So you would literally come into a scene, stop, Blah, 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 go. Stop. Blah, 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 go. I mean, that just points to the fact, oh, now we're watching a projected moment, and at any moment now, our ride will go again. I think that was a fundamental flaw in the pacing of that. All good attractions are about pacing. Just a great movie, a great Broadway show, a great TV show, and a great attraction. It's about pacing pacing it so that there are ups and downs and it builds to a climactic finale and leaves you feeling breathless or emotional or excited or laughing or whatever at the end. And all those key moments, it fails other than the beginning. The beginning is fantastic. You go in. I thought when that thing happened, I thought, okay, this is great. This is going to be great. All of them should have been done like that. All of them should, should have incorporated the projections in a more active, dynamic, immersive manner. And they really failed on the ending. I mean, the last effect was the worst effect. And then you whimper on out. You don't shoot out. You kind of, ooh, you know. And you remember all the, no one's applauding in the, in the actual ride device. So all the ride operators are applauding going, wasn't, did you enjoy it? Wasn't that great? They're applauding. <laughs> Just trying to get you to applaud. Yeah. <laughs> and the way you get people to applaud is you give them a finale moment that is frigging Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. That last effect with the dragon tail was a total, total misfire. So, you know, don't get me wrong. I want to be blown away. And by the way, I was blown away on all, all the queue. They, 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 they did a fantastic job on the queue. The queue is fantastic in Green Gods from start to finish. Everything's great. The ride starts out great. Unfortunately, the best moment in the ride is the first moment. And the best moment in the ride should have been the last one. So, anyway. I'm probably saying too much, but uh, that's my feeling. My feeling is that they don't understand pacing. They don't understand how you have to make choices in the technology to, that you decide on to to tell the best version of the story you can. I don't think they've done, I guess that's the good news. I don't think they've done the definitive Harry Potter ride yet. There's probably another ride out there 
that does involve 3D and 4D and some kind of new kind of ride device that could be fantastic. Because I still say the best medium for Harry Potter is 3D film, but they haven't used it with 4D in the right way yet. Not really, not to meet its full potential. I think the the single like 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 single handedly the greatest ride simulator that I've ever been on is uh, over at Animal Kingdom Flight of Passage. That's cool. Yeah, that's a cool one. That one, uh, and no surprise, it's related to James Cameron again. It's just that one. I mean, I think I actually got teary eyed on that one because of just you know the the whole combination of the music, the score was so beautiful. And then there's that moment where you're going under the wave as it's cresting. And, and, uh, it just hit me like, like you actually feel like you're flying. Like that's the closest I've ever felt to the sensation of not flying, but feeling as though I am actually flying. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I think they did a good job on that. Yeah. That's a, that's a, that's one hell of a attraction, but, um, so that's the story of T2. And then uh, um, to kind of round this out, because we've uh, we've been going for quite a while, and I really, really appreciate you uh, uh, jumping on here. And, uh, and Is and, anyone going to listen to two hours worth of talking? Um, I mean, do you, uh, do you listen to Joe Rogan or, or uh, any of those podcasts? I, I don't really, because I'm, I'm usually too busy. So I don't... <laughs> Yeah, there is a uh, there is an appetite, I will say, for uh, long form conversation podcasts. And uh, all right. Yeah. A lot of people enjoy them. Um, what is uh, what is uh, what's the future hold for for Gary Goddard? Like, what's the next uh, what's the next step in uh, in your journey? Well, a, uh, um, a theme park that we designed three years ago, an indoor uh, water park uh up in harbin china just was named by china the best indoor theme park in china just two weeks ago and another park that we designed in shanghai about 40 minutes from shanghai disney uh called the uh hai chang polar no, i'm sorry hai chang ocean park shanghai uh that was named last year the best theme park in china uh, not not disney parks chinese chinese based china parks okay so take disney out of the equation obviously it's it's the best park in china by far <laughs> um and we have a couple other new projects that are scheduled to open soon um that have been under construction and we're we were we're right now we're on hold on everything because of the coronavirus but we were working on several other uh projects in china and korea and vietnam a lot of our works in asia right now um and uh and then i'm working on a few other things as well um including writing a book and uh, um, a couple uh, potential um, media projects. So I, I'm staying pretty busy. Awesome. That's, that's great. And uh, besides Facebook, you don't have like any actual uh, social media that, uh, that, that, that people can just freely follow or do you? Um, mainly Facebook. Um, and then uh, they can go to the, le it's, it's legacy entertainment. Now they can go to legacyentertainment.com uh, for the company. We changed the name of the company. Um, but on legacy, uh, entertainment.com, they can, uh, at least follow more. Gotcha. Alrighty. I will uh, make sure that I link that down below. So if anyone is interested, definitely go check that out. And, uh, Gary, it's, uh, it's been a privilege and, uh, and a real treat to, uh, you know, like I said, have you jump on here and uh, shoot the shit for two plus hours now. So, um, yeah, that was great. Sometime we can do it again on Spider-Man and Jurassic Park and some of the other ones, but uh, great. Awesome. 
thanks for taking the time. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. And uh, hope to stay in touch with you. All right. You take care. All right. You too, Gary. Thank you. Bye.